It's a real privilege for me to be opening up God's word for us this afternoon. Um, Exodus has been uh, one of those books of the Bible that has been so important to me in my own Christian faith. And one of the things that I really like about Exodus is that it is multi-layered, that God is always doing more than one thing in the story of the Exodus. And one of the ways that that becomes clear is uh, how the rest of the Bible speaks about and picks up the themes that we see in the Exodus. Like in our first reading, we read that uh, the writer of the Hebrews um, says, those who all their lives, describing the people who Jesus saves, those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. The story of Exodus, then, is the story of a great liberation from slavery. Yet the big story of the Bible is the story of the greatest liberation from an even more far-reaching slavery. And I think what we'll see today is Moses is God's great deliverer at the heart of his Exodus deliverance. And we'll see what it takes for God to prepare his deliverer. But as great as Moses is, there is a greater deliverer who wins the greatest possible victory. And so here's what I'm trying to say. Here's the kind of single big thing I think could change your life this afternoon. In Moses, God prepares a great deliverer. Yet for the greatest deliverance, for our deliverance, God himself becomes the greatest and perfect deliverer, Jesus Christ. And I think we'll see that as God prepares Moses, his deliverer. And so let's get into it. Here are three things that Moses had to learn the hard way. The first is this. Moses had to learn that God's deliverer comes down in solidarity. Now, Moses has had a rough few days. We're introduced to Moses at the start of the passage, and this child of Hebrew slaves has grown up in the royal palace. But after 48 hours of anger and violence and fear, we find Moses alone, no longer sat by his grandfather's throne in Egypt with all the riches of the kingdom at his fingertips. No, we find him alone, no palace to call home, slumped against a dusty well in the middle of nowhere. And in a way that he couldn't have predicted, through his own actions, his life has unraveled, way out of his control. Yet, there is more going on here. Even as Moses' life falls apart, we can see clues and patterns and glimmers that God is working behind the scenes to line things up just the way he likes. You see, God is preparing for himself a deliverer. And the first lesson, this first lesson that Moses must learn is that God's deliverer comes down in solidarity. 
You see, Moses, this Hebrew-born prince of Egypt, was a walking identity crisis. But when he was in Egypt, only a handful of people were greater than him. Yet Moses chooses to risk that. In fact, it's more he abandons that to take up the plight of the Hebrew people, making their struggle his own. But the God who made Moses and saved Moses as a child is not new to this. God is doing more than one thing here. In fact, we're seeing that God is preparing for himself a deliverer for a very particular kind of deliverance. A rescuer fit for purpose. In fact, jumping ahead 40 years... God appears to Moses famously in the burning bush and begins that rescue with these words. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. This is God speaking. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down. To rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land. You see, God's deliverer will lead a deliverance of downward movement. The powerful and mighty coming down in concern and solidarity. And that, for Moses, is a hard lesson to learn. Just think about some of the details of Moses' story. We're told at the beginning, look at verse 11, that Moses finds himself watching his own people in their suffering, watching an Egyptian brutalizing one of his own people. And so Moses, like any Egyptian prince, trained in combat and the strategies of warfare, he makes sure nobody is looking And notice here in the text, this isn't an uncontrollable rage. He is choosing this. He doesn't want anyone to see as he brutalizes the Egyptian. Then he does his best to hide the evidence covering the body in the sand. Look at verse 13. We're told that Moses went back the next day. He returned to the scene of the crime. But you have to wonder... In between those days, that night, you have to wonder what that was like for him. You know, 40 years ago, his grandfather had tried to kill the Israelite baby boys because he was worried that they would eventually become a military threat to Egypt. And now, one of those Israelite baby boys had grown up, fighting age... (laughs) And had just struck down an Egyptian. I wonder if he slept at all that night. Or whether he snuck back to the palace and simply waited for a knock on the palace door from the kingdom police. Or maybe he imagines that the Hebrew man he rescued, he makes it back home that night. He's injured, but he's alive. And he begins sharing what this great prince had done for him. And slowly the word spreads that the Hebrew in the palace had finally chosen a side. 
that rescue and revolution was on its way. Maybe Moses imagined that there would be an uprising, that in the morning he'd return to the scene of the crime and he'd be greeted by a growing squad of Hebrew slaves turned soldiers, ready to follow him into the fight for the liberation of his people. See, I think the only reason Moses could possibly have for returning that next day is if he was choosing the Israelites, becoming God's deliverer, the prince coming down in solidarity with the slave. And that's not the last time we see that happen. You see, God is always doing more than one thing in the Exodus. There was another night, another moment where a prince considered taking up the plight of an enslaved people. You see, Moses is great, but he's not quite Jesus. God's greatest deliverer, the prince of heaven, Jesus Christ, came down in solidarity with humanity becoming one of us, stepping into our struggles. Our mortal enemy becomes his enemy. And the New Testament describes it like this. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that's a long way down. You see, God was preparing Moses to be his kind of deliverer. Moses choosing to, be, to come down, giving up the benefits of his status, descending to a broken people in solidarity and concern. Moses becoming like God. The God who would in time also choose to come down, laying aside the benefits of his status, descending to a broken people in solidarity and concern, and to even be broken himself for us. And it's kind of surprising, if you think about it, that the Israelites didn't recognize how that morning, when they see Moses back in the camp, that they, they just don't get it. You see, the word had spread, but only Pharaoh could recognize its significance. The Israelites reject Moses, who now faces a death sentence as a traitor to the kingdom. And you know that the story out there, the story that the world tells us is that behind the brutal chaos of our world, there is no greater story. No God out there to come down, just fate and chance and survival. But the story in here, the story in these pages is that behind the brutality and the chaos of our world, there is a God who hates brutality and is writing the greatest story. A God who, unlike the world, does not despise the small. 
the slave, the weak, those who have nothing to offer. Where the world says, climb up, make yourself something, God says, I'll come down. This is God's story. And so even if we're not in control, there's more going on in our lives than just fate, chance and survival. And so let's learn Moses' lesson in humility. He didn't despise what seemed unimpressive, so neither should we. And so don't be too quick to despise your own smallness, weakness, your own lack of resources or productivity. Don't be too quick to despise your complicated life story, your fractured family history, your background, limitations and challenges, your low status or undesirable position, or whatever it is, whatever it is that makes you feel as if you're at a disadvantage, God has enough perfection in himself that he hasn't come down looking for more. Don't be too quick to despise what might feel look like the unraveling of life by a dusty well in the middle of nowhere. And so we'll move on to point two next. So we're back at the well. Moses has had a rough few days, to say the least. And what we see is that God's deliverer goes wide in compassion. That's the next lesson. And now the writer tells us that Moses um, is sat by the well. He doesn't tell us that uh, whether or not Moses was wallowing in self-pity, whether he had his like bottom lip out, sulking, feeling sorry for himself. But whatever was going through Moses' mind at that moment is disrupted by another fight. Moses watches as a group of young women, sisters looking after their father's flock, are pushed around and harassed by some shepherds. The women, vulnerable as they are, are being forced away from the well, but they're not Hebrews. They have no meaningful connection to Moses or his people. In fact, their dad is a priest of another god. So this is a random, insignificant family to Moses, facing the mistreatment that is all too common in our brutal world. But Moses, vulnerable as he is, he doesn't join in with the shepherds, hoping to not become a victim himself. He doesn't even watch from a safe distance or sneak away knowing that he's got a lot on his plate right now. No, look at verse 17. Moses got up and came to their rescue. Yet there's more to this encounter than meets the eye. Even in this random encounter with this random family, we can see clues and patterns and glimmers that God is working behind the scenes to line things up. God is still preparing for himself a deliverer fit for purpose. And the second lesson Moses learns here is that God's 
deliverer goes wide in compassion. You see, when these young women get back to their waiting father, he's surprised to see them back so soon. That probably means that these shepherds had been a recurring issue for the family. Their father's surprise exposes that they had become accustomed to the bullies, that they had learned to live with their abuse. And so they weren't looking for rescue, especially not as part of the plans of some foreign god and his deliverer in training, but the God who crafted each member of their family, who made the Midianites and every human being, doesn't make narrow plans. And what we're seeing is that God is preparing for himself a deliverer for a wide and compassionate, outstretched deliverance. Now, just a bit of a spoiler here in Exodus. Um, I want to read some verses from Exodus 12, but it does give the game away that um, God does have his victory over Pharaoh. And in Exodus 12, verse 38 and 37, the author makes note of exactly who it was who was there when the Israelites finally left Egypt. I'll read that. The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Sukkoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Many other people went up with them. And also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. You see, deliverance for around probably like a million or so Israelites here meant deliverance for many other enslaved people groups. God's deliverer would lead a deliverance of outstretched compassion. A rabble of random slaves will be swept along to freedom in the wake of God's victory. But Moses couldn't see all that. After the dust settles and the drama of the bad shepherds is over, Moses is sat back at the well alone with nothing to show for it. He's watching this random family head back to their dad. And the surprising width of God's compassion might feel like a hard lesson at that point. But when the sisters get back to their dad and they begin to explain the rescue they've received, as they begin to kind of speak out what has happened to them and reflect on the details, they share with their father something that caught them off guard. Something they weren't accustomed to. Let's look at verse 19. Look at what they say in their report to their father. They answered, an Egyptian. And I don't even think they asked Moses' name. I think he kind of saves them. And then they're like, oh, great. I'll see you later. Um, an Egyptian, whoever he was, random Egyptian, rescued us from the shepherds. But notice this. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. And so they're blown away by this random Egyptian. They say to their dad, not only did he rescue us, dad, he took care of the animals. He saved us from the bad shepherds. He sat us down and he became a good shepherd to us. He looked after us. 
He cared. And for Moses, this was more than just ethnic solidarity. These aren't Hebrews. These aren't his own people. This was a care for them as victims, as sufferers of the brutality in an unjust world. This was a humble makeshift shepherd going wide in compassion. And that's not the last time we see that happen. You see, God is always doing more than one thing in the Exodus. Years later, there was another humble, good shepherd embodying the words of Psalm 23, who took care of randomers. You see, Moses is great, but he's not quite Jesus. And let me remind you quickly uh, of the words from the Gospel of Mark where um, Jesus feeds a crowd of over 5,000 people. He says to them, or the narrative goes, when Jesus landed from the boat, he wasn't flying, he landed from the boat, and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd so he began teaching them many things then Jesus directed them it goes on a little bit later to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass you see God's greatest and perfect deliverer the good shepherd brought a deliverance even wider in compassion through his own outstretched arms and again, it's explained in the New Testament like this. Remember that at one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Kind of like that random Midianite family. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, in this random encounter by the well, God was preparing Moses with a compassion so wide that he chose to rescue an insignificant family of randomers. Moses becoming like his God. A God with compassion and care so wide that through the shedding of his own blood, he won for himself a global family of randomers like us. But life, life can be brutal and can be filled with thousands of seemingly insignificant moments. I don't know what they are for you. Parenting, not like the whole of parenting, but good chunks of it. Swathes can feel that way. Work, family life, the challenges that that brings, school. Life can sometimes feel like a series of unconnected, random, and even meaningless events. Yet, I think what we learn here with Moses is that because God, the God who made us, is a God of wide, outstretched compassion, nothing is ever 
only random or only brutal. Nothing, even the worst things, nothing is wasted with God. No dull moment sat by a dusty well in the middle of nowhere is wasted with him. God is always doing more than one thing. And so I think that means that there are at least two questions that are always relevant in our life. The first is this. This is probably the easiest one. Who in my life needs the compassion of God right now? How can I be like my good shepherd to somebody today? Where does injustice need disrupting in my community? Even the kind of injustice that the victims have grown accustomed to. Who is so tired and used to their mistreatment that your thoughtful kindness would be a beautiful surprise to them? That's one question semicolons and all that. Uh, The second question, I think, is a harder question. The second question is this. Is God's compassion wide enough for me? Based on who you know God to be, what you know God to have done for us in Jesus Christ, does he love you? And I'm not asking if you love you. (laughs) I'm not even asking if God should love you. I'm asking if God came down to give his life for you, to bring you home to him. Does he love you? Can you imagine the difference it would make if you'd allow that answer to sink in? especially when life feels brutal and random. His care, his tender care, his wraparound tender care. And so many of you know that firsthand. And I'm sure many of you have the stories and the evidence of that care. His Care is wide enough to reach you, and it is wide enough to keep you. And that's a, Moses, that's a lesson that Moses learns. The third and final lesson that Moses has to learn is that God's deliverer runs deep with expectation. Moses has had a rough few days. And he still sat by that dusty well. The sisters have told their dad about the rescue and his compassion. And Ruel, their dad, he has to tell them, he has to say, go go and get this guy. Invite him round. You left him at the well? Ruel seems to quickly come to genuinely love and appreciate Moses. And after some time, Ruel offers the hand of one of his daughters to Moses in marriage. And sometime later, as they settle into life as a couple, they welcome a new baby into the world. New life. And you can imagine the naming ceremony. 
The meaning of names carried a lot of significance in this ancient culture. So when Moses is ready to announce his choice, I'm sure Zipporah, her six sisters and Ruel gather round and they're keen to understand how Moses is making sense of this moment. And look at verse 22. Zipporah gave birth to a son and Moses named him Gershom. Gershom. And Zipporah says, oh, what does that mean? Sounds wonderful. (laughs) I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. You have to wonder how that went down. (laughs) The modern equivalent of that would be turning up to the registry office and trying to register your new baby with the name, are we there yet? (laughs) I don't think they'd let you. But that's the sense of the name given. Although Moses has settled into this family, Moses is also, he's also become a stranger, waiting and hoping for home. I don't think he means he wants to go back to the palace in Egypt. Maybe, maybe Moses is drawing on some of his Hebrew history. Repeating what God had said to Abraham in Genesis 15. God says this. Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. This is God speaking to Abraham years, generations before Moses. And that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. Now, I don't know if you noticed that, but God says, they will be strangers in a country not their own. And now the Hebrew wording is incredibly similar. But in any case, it does seem clear that Moses is continuing in solidarity and concern that he's taken to heart the the plight and the posture of the Hebrew people still slaves back in Egypt they're still waiting for deliverance and so there's more going on here than it first seems it's not just a bad name choice As Moses expresses this sense of dissatisfaction and disappointment, we see clues and patterns and glimmers that God is at work behind the scenes, lining things up just the way he likes. God is preparing for himself a deliverer. And this is the hardest lesson. The final thing Moses must learn is that God's deliverer runs deep with expectation. And over the next 40 years and then some, God will teach Moses how to wait. To wait. How to hope. Hope for a greater deliverance. Moses could have named his son Ah, home at last. (laughs) Oh, he could have found a name that meant finally a family. Maybe that went through his head. 
But if that was how Moses made sense of that moment, he would have been missing the bigger picture. Because God is always doing more than one thing. You see, Gershom, <laughs> Gershom seems to be Moses' way of saying, this is great, but the greatest is yet to come. I'm not content with this smaller, shallower victory. And of course, I don't mean that Moses didn't love his family or that loving and enjoying our family is shallow. No, I'm saying that the name Moses chose indicates that he was able to locate his own story within the sweep of the greatest story and chose to give expression to that at a time when the small story felt good and wholesome, but the big story felt disappointing and incomplete and uncertain. Somehow, with God's help, Moses chose to live up to the biggest story he knew even though he had no clue how those deep expectations and hopes would be met. And you just have to wonder, Ruel sat in the corner watching his new son-in-law sing songs of liberation to his new baby. You have to wonder what Ruel is thinking of all this. And wonderfully, and this is special I think, we can read the moment that Moses is reunited with Ruel, his father-in-law, after the exodus, after the deliverance that he is waiting for. And that question of what is going on here is answered. And so let me read this. It's a little bit longer, but I think this is just absolutely stunning. This is Exodus 18. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law after the exodus and bowed down and kissed him. They greeted each other and then went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro, and now that's Ruel, it's just a different name used, was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hands of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and rescued you, uh, the people, from the hand of the Egyptians. He kind of repeats himself. But look at this, verse 11. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods. For he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. You see, God's great deliverer, Moses, didn't settle for the shallow victories. His expectation of a great deliverance ran deep. 
And through hearing about what God had eventually done to rescue his people, Ruel, this random non-Hebrew priest, becomes a convert and worshipper of the living God of Israel. And now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem that random to me. See, God was preparing Moses, yes, to go down in solidarity, yes, to stretch wide in compassion, but also to wait on God's timing. And this is the hardest lesson, to trust. To trust. And so I do think that this passage is about God preparing Moses to be his kind of deliverer, to be like him. Moses chooses to wait on the timing of God, running deep with expectations. Moses waits. And that's not the last time we see that happen. You see, God is always doing more than one thing. There is, of course, a greater deliverer than Moses and a greater deliverance than Exodus. But I wonder if you know that there is a greater waiting. Moses waited. Moses is great, but he's not quite Jesus. You see, God's greatest deliverer Achieved the greatest deliverance, coming down in solidarity, outstretched on that cross in compassion, died the death we deserve to die, and then was raised to life. And right now, today, right now is alive, waiting, waiting. Let me show you um, Hebrews 10, 12 to 13. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made a footstool. And that may remind you of some of the words Jesus used to institute the Lord's Supper. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Jesus is waiting for his people. This is what God has been doing all along, working a greater deliverance. You see, where Moses tried to liberate his people at first by taking a life, Jesus liberates his people by giving his life as a sacrifice. And not a sacrifice like Ruel, Aaron and the Levites' priest offered, Unlike them, and even unlike Moses, Jesus' one sacrifice for sin was enough for all time. God's greatest deliverer, Jesus Christ, when he did for us what none of us could do for ourselves, he sat down, not in failure, by a dusty well in the middle of nowhere, but in victory 
at the right hand of the Father, the living God. Moses' waiting ended with the defeat and judgment of Pharaoh. The waiting of our greater deliverer, Jesus Christ, will end with the defeat and judgment of Satan and evil and injustice and brutality and even death. I just wish I could put this into words for us. Perfect solidarity. He took on flesh and suffered for us. Motivated by love and irresistible compassion for us. And is alive, waiting and praying for us. Like a bridegroom full of anticipation, love and pride, awaiting the appearance of his bride. Jesus is waiting for his people. Does he love you? Friends, this is the biggest and the best story we know. This is the perfect story to live up to. This isn't just a wonderful story of the saving of souls like Ruel. This is the story of the world being put right. God's deliverance of everything. All things made new. That's what we're waiting for. That's the only story that as we live up to it, we become more humble, more comfortable in our own skin, more compassionate, and live and die with a hope that nothing can kill. And so let's not be content with smaller, shallower victories that are good for a moment. But let's learn together, like Moses, to live for our greater deliverer. And so let's speak to him in prayer right now. Dear Jesus, we are blown away by your Suffering for us, you're coming down to us. Wow. You really showed up for us. You took on our struggles. You didn't look at our randomness, our sin, our insignificance as a barrier to your help. In fact, it was our plight that attracted your care. Father, we're sorry for when we live as if we are self-made. We're sorry for the pride that lurks in our hearts. We're sorry that we're not yet as compassionate as you are. And we too often settle for small victories. Thank you for the shedding of your blood, for the forgiveness of sins. 
We, we come to you seeking forgiveness, knowing you will receive us. We come to you receiving grace, knowing you're glad to give it. We come to you seeking peace and comfort in our suffering and the brutality of our time. Knowing that you know what it is to suffer. And that you have overcome the world in your son. And so Father help us. Help us to be humble. Compassionate. Help us to be people who care for justice. And help us to wait on your timing. Trusting your goodness. Looking to your son. By the power of your spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.